I'm not pulling out of the driveway. We all know what that means. It's time for the drive to work at home edition. Okay, so, so I, today I have a guest from way back in early magic, Joel Mick. Hey, Joel. Hey, Mark. Okay, so Joel, I think you have, you are the only person I believe that did the following three things, which was you were an original playtester, you were head designer, and you were brand manager of magic. I don't think anybody else has done those three things. I mean, together, individually, obviously. <laughs> okay, uh, so let's... That's probably true. But, you know, everybody <laughs> in the world has some unique combination of things that they've done. Uh, it happens to be mine. Okay, so we'll start from the very beginning. What is your first memory? How did you first get involved with magic? Uh, I was playing bridge at the uh, University of Pennsylvania Bridge Club while I was in law school. And uh, Richard played uh, bridge at the bridge club as well. And so did Barry Wright, who you interviewed um, a few weeks back. And uh, I started playing bridge there and Barry was my bridge partner. And Richard was enlisting people to play test and, and the bridge club players made good play testers. Um, and so I got roped in. Okay, so what, give me your first impressions. When you first saw Magic, what, what were you thinking? What, like, what was your very first sort of impression of it? Well, it was extremely addictive in the sense that after you played a game or two games, you would immediately start trying to figure out how to optimize your deck and which cards your opponent had in their deck that were good and you'd wonder what other cards existed and as you learned more and more about what cards did exist um and start thinking about cards you might trade for to make your deck better it it was clear that the game had incredible depth and and just really hooked uh hooked people so do you in a way, in a way that bridge bridge can do that also but i mean magic can really do that so what is your earliest memory? Like, do you remember the first deck you made? Or what, what, what do you remember? Like, what was your early strategies? Do you remember? Uh, wow. I don't know that I remember early strategy. I, 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 I know in the beginning, the idea, there were a lot of cards that were at common that were really, really good, like Ancestral Memory, which became Ancestral Recall, and Time Walk, and Starburst, which was one and a red, uh, also take an extra turn. Uh, actually, literally, your opponent loses their next turn. Um, and so clearly, if you got enough of those kind of cards in your deck, uh, your deck would be really, really good. But it wasn't apparent to everybody in the beginning which cards were that powerful. And so the idea was kind of try to figure out before other people which cards are really good, try to trade people for those cards or win them from them in ante uh, to make your deck better. So uh, just for the audience to understand, so give me a sense of original playtesting. So what would, if you were going to playtest, what would a typical session be like? Well, in the very beginning, Richard handed out, I think it was like 60 card decks and you would play your choice of 40 out of the 60 cards. So it was very similar to uh, first edition starter decks, which if anybody has ever opened and tried to build a deck from first edition starter decks, or for that matter, from the starter deck product that existed for several years uh, when Magic was first published, you realize, wow, there's five different colors of cards in here, roughly equally distributed, and there's five different land types um, 
and you realize, wow, I, I don't like I'm not going to have a well-oiled machine, basically. Right. Uh, and, and so basically everybody built a minimum 40 cards. Everybody built three color decks because that's basically all the land you had was to you know support at least you're going to be playing at least three different colors of, of amount of production of land. Um, so, yeah, it was the power level was low. And for that reason, it wasn't actually that easy to figure out which cards were super good because in the context of a 40 card deck, one ancestral memory and the rest of your blue cards aren't that great. And sometimes you don't have blue mana when you draw it, just like, it's not that great. So uh, at what point did he allow trading? Cause I know at some point you could start trading with other people and that, that starts solving that problem. Right. Yeah. So, well, the initial, the initial um, idea was that you would just play for ante and that would create uh, cards flowing around dynamically, which would keep the game interesting for people because they're, they would be able to keep changing um, their decks a little bit at a time as they played. Um, and some people thought that was fun, and some people just absolutely hated it because, as you can imagine, if you lose your what you consider to be your best card in ante, or even, you know, you have a lot of good blue cards and you have five islands in your 40-card deck and you lose one of your islands. It's horrible. Like, it decimates your deck. Um, and so that wasn't very much fun for people. And um, so, yes, Richard added, uh, added in trading as a way to allow people to kind of make up for if you lost a card and the person who won it didn't really care about the card. Uh, okay, so do, do you have a favorite story from playtesting? Um, well, what used to happen was that there, there were... Obviously, the common, uncommon, and rare cards the same way that there, there were in first edition. Um, but if everybody only had one starter deck, you can imagine, like, first edition starter decks, they have two rares out of 115 or something. Um, so most people didn't see most rares. They didn't even see most of the uncommons, probably. Um, and, and so rumors would start to go around about oh my God, did you see such and such person, um, the card that they have? So an example, a good example is Chaos Orb, which was called Sphere of Annihilation. And um, so as soon as there was a rumor that there was this card that somebody could flip onto your playing area and it would destroy all the cards that it landed on, then people would start spreading their cards out all over the table because they were worried that the person that they were playing against had a chaos orb. Um, so I, I guess that's kind of my, my earliest um, memory of a, of a story. And I, I know you're, you're a fan of chaos orb, right? Uh, well, it's interesting. So yeah, there were, there were some play testers who, enjoyed the uh the physical aspect of it and the randomness and the sort of lightheartedness of chaos War. um and there were others who felt that the game should be just purely mentally a strategic game and you know i honestly can't remember i I think I'm probably in the camp of it should just be purely a strategic game, but it's a little hard to separate because our first fix for Chaos Orb slash Sphere of Annihilation was basically to turn it into a Vindicate. Mm -hmm. And um, 
a vindicate that you needed to flip, right? So basically mm -hmm. the way it's played in old school today, right? You target yeah. a card, you flip it, it either lands on that card or not. And if it does, you remove, you destroy that card. Mm -hmm. um, and so like that, that worked a little bit better because it didn't cause the play area to get all spread out everywhere yeah. um, for very little reason. Okay, so you guys are playtesting. So Richard recognizes that at some point, I don't think anybody realized how fast, but at some point, Magic would need more content in theory. So he had the different teams work on sets. So the team that you worked on uh, was a set called Menagerie, which the audience would know better as Mirage and Visions. So talk a little bit about how did, how did Menagerie start? How did you guys decide that's what you were going to make? Well, uh, so there were a couple things going on. Um, one was continuing to, to play test cards with different casting costs or uh, we the various play testers would come up with cards that they would like to see. And, you know, Richard, everyone has their own opinions. Richard has his opinions. He had the cards he designed. Um, and, and so the group that includes Bill Rose and myself and Charlie Catino um, basically started developing our own expansion, uh, which was a version of the base set with various things costed differently and with other cards added in. Um, so it, it's, yeah, I'm, I don't know that, that that's how it started. Yeah. And the thing I should explain to the audience just so they understand, um, early on, the idea of expansions wasn't that it was sort of additive. It was kind of like, here's the new version of magic, right? That, right. that was the original idea. It's like, okay, we have the magazine for, for August and then now it's September. August magazine isn't sold anymore because everybody's already read it. Here comes September's magazine. Everybody buys September magazine. Okay, so okay, so the next I'm going chronologically here. So the next thing is magic comes out. So I'm sort of curious from your perspective, sort of the phenomenon that magic became. What was that like experiencing it as someone who knew magic, but like before it came out? What was that experience like? Well, my experience was was different from the experience of somebody like Peter Atkinson who was meeting with all distributors and going to conventions and setting up booths and doing a, a retailer tour with the product. Um, I, I was just, I was at University of Pennsylvania. I graduated law school, passed the bar exam, working as a, a tax attorney. And so I went a couple times to game stores to do some demos uh, with some people when there were some demos set up in the Philadelphia area. Um, but, you know, this is back before the internet is, you know, is huge, even before um, uh, the use group, Usenet groups or whatever were huge. So I didn't really know. I mean, yeah, I, I was to me, my time was just spent sort of designing and, and play testing the cards in, for Menagerie, which became Mirage. But what, what was the first time you kind of realized, like, this is going to be big, like this is going to be a, like. I don't think anybody could have assumed the scope that it became because it's kind of hard to imagine something of, of that ilk. But when did you realize kind of it was going to be a hit? Uh, well, Richard very generously gave all of the playtesters shares of stock in Garfield Games, which was uh, the name of the company that he created that owned Magic. And uh, so... Eventually, as shareholders, we got shareholder reports, and you would get these reports, and it would show like 
quarter one revenue, a million dollars, quarter two revenue, two and a half million dollars, quarter three revenue, five million dollars, quarter four revenue, ten million dollars. <laughs> well, you don't know where the exponential growth there is going to end. But uh, looking at something like that, I think it's pretty clear that it, it was a huge hit. OK, so you're a, a, a tax lawyer. And then you become an employee of Wizards. So how, how did you go from that job to working at Wizards? How did, how did that happen? Um, well, I came out to the Seattle area to visit Richard and uh, his wife uh, at the time, Lily. And I guess Richard must have, in the back of his mind, been thinking that he needs somebody to come in and lead the design of magic going forward so that he can remove himself more completely and just focus on designing new games, which was much more of an interest of his than mm -hmm. just continuing to create quote unquote derivative uh, products. Although just how derivative uh, everything in magic is today or not, uh, I, I guess I won't go into um, since I think that it's, it's, well, I guess I will go into it. I'll say I think it's amazing that after so many years, the product can come out at, with new cards and new ideas that people are still excited about. Because I do remember Peter and other people saying after a couple of years, wow, how are you going to keep coming up with new new things to keep magic fresh and not just have to circle back to reprinting things? So. Yeah. So that's how Richard was looking for somebody. Richard uh, sort of interviewed me without me realizing so much that I was being interviewed and just kind of planted the idea of, hey, um, you know, is this something that you might want to do? So what was it like? So, uh, I mean, I guess Richard Technic was the first head designer. You were the second head designer. What was it like sort of being head? I mean, I'm the fourth head designer. So it goes Richard, then you, then Bill, then me. This is the, the order. Um so what was it like in the early days? Like, what was the head designer being like back in, you know, 94, 95? Well, it's interesting because I, I can't speak to exactly what your responsibilities are. But um, when I came on, all the designs of uh, Future Magic products were being done freelance by these independent groups uh, under royalty contracts. And there was no control over the quality of, of these designs. And it's not a good way to run a company to have that little control over what you're planning on publishing. And so, you know, initially my focus was not so much on designing cards myself, uh, but really on recruiting people who I felt like would be good designers and would with me be able to uh, develop a philosophy for what makes good magic cards, what mix of cards makes for a good magic product. Okay, so that seems like a good segue. So um, do you remember uh, your interview with me when you interviewed me for a job? Do, do you, do I do, you were such a cute guy. <laughs> I couldn't resist. So, so here's no, this. I, yeah. Honestly, I do not remember that much, Mark. Well, okay, so let me, I just want to tell the audience this is a funny story. So, I tell Mike Davis that I, I'm willing to work at Wizards, and Mike Davis is like, "Okay, when can you start?" Basically, um, so 
Nobody, only one person, you were the only person to do an official interview with me. Everybody else was like, I know Mark, he's fine. Like, so the interview you and I had is you made me play a game with you. And so the deck I play, I played this deck that the whole point of the deck was I beat you in a weird way that you don't know how I'm beating you. It was a very like, I, I'm slowly strangling you, but like, it was a very bizarre deck. And I managed to beat you in the game. And you're a very good magic player. This, I mean, I was, I didn't know whether I was going to win or not. And I managed to beat you. And you were very impressed with my deck because it was just weird. It was like it, you didn't know what it was doing. It was one of those decks that kind of like it beats you, but like you didn't understand how it beat you. And you were impressed with my deck. And so I, I go, I, people ask me how my interview with Joel went. I go, I beat him. They go, that's good. <laughs> that's, that's what Bill's response when they said that I, uh, I beat you. Bill goes, oh yeah, that's good. That was a good interview. Well, now I understand why I don't remember the interview. Because I, I purposely try to block out anything where I lose. I see, I see. Um, but yeah, that was my, you were my only interview for Wizards. I, I, no one else interviewed me. You, you were my one interview. So, okay. So next up, Mirage comes well, up. Because I'm sure if you talk to other people, yeah. like Bill Rose, he will tell you he sat in interviews that had 15 people, representatives from every single department at the company, and... Yeah, my, there and, and did nothing for an hour. Right. The, the secret of my success is I freelanced for like 15 sections of the company. So like everybody knew me because I had done a job for them. That, I think that was the secret. So, okay. Next up. So um, one of the first sets I worked on when I got there was Mirage. So let's talk a little bit about your set finally comes out. What, what is that like to see Mirage actually get to the, the public? Uh, so this is going to be an anticlimactic answer. <laughs> okay. So um, I left Philadelphia and moved to Seattle in late 1994 mm -hmm. to work as lead designer for Magic. Mm -hmm. And the other five people who were designers of Mirage were in Philadelphia. Mm -hmm. So at that point, I basically stopped working on it. Um, and Bill Rose continued to lead the designing and the playtesting of it in Philadelphia. So... By the time it came in and it went through R&D for development, um, which, again, I, I mean, I've looked at the card, at the file with the, all the cards in it, mm -hmm. um, and, and I'm sure I had some comments, but I didn't feel attached to it in the way that I might have if it was something where I had just been sitting down and, you know, sort of working straight through designing it, developing it, and then seeing it published. So do you, do you have a favorite card in Mirage that you did? Uh, well, I like Lion's Eye Diamond because we figured out how to fix Black Lotus. We made this horrible <laughs> card that looked like it would be like as good as a Black Lotus, but then it was horrible. Yeah, the and so, it wasn't. <laughs> the, so the here, here's my my um, I, I'll own up to my my uh, contribution to this problem. So when Lion's Eye Diamond came in in development, originally it tapped for colorless. And in development, I'm like, well, if it's going to be a bad Lotus, it should be a bad Lotus. And so I, I changed it so it, it made color rather than colorless. Now, maybe it's still broken with colorless, but I, I, I feel like I contributed a little bit to it being broken by uh, adding color to it. So my contribution to Lion's Eye Diamond. Okay, uh, so next up, you leave being head designer to become brand manager of Magic. So what, what, how did that happen? Uh, well, it happened because the person who was brand manager of Magic uh, when Wizards acquired the license to Pokemon, mm -hmm. um, they moved this person who had a, a business degree, uh, an MBA, um, over to manage 
the Pokemon license and the publishing of Pokemon and so forth. Mm. And they needed somebody to take on that role for magic. And I guess I had done something sufficiently well as the desire, um, you know, and, and seemed to know enough and have enough of a vision for what magic should be um, that they selected me to do that. And also that there was a good replacement for me mm-hmm. um, that I felt comfortable with. And I believe most of the people in R&D working on magic felt comfortable with, which was Bill Rose. Okay, so there's a bunch of things you introduced. I mean, I, I'm sure I don't remember them all, but I remember a few of them. So I just want to talk through a few of the things that basically I introduced as, as when you were brand manager. That was by you and your team introduced this. Uh, first up was rarity symbols. Um. You also introduced collector numbers, and you introduced uh, premium slash foil cards. Those are all things that you guys introduced. So where did that come from? What was the idea to do these things? Well, I think it's a very natural thing to think about doing that with a collectible card product. Um, that There was a lot of hesitancy, and there was a lot of internal debate, um, and a lot of people who thought that those were terrible ideas and uh, I, th- I think what happened was there was this underlying fear that taking steps to make the product more appealing to collectors would in some sense be taking away from or moving the product in the direction of a collectible at the expense of being a game. And my feeling was that even players are collectors. It's a collectible card game, right? Like, even if you don't want to collect full sets, whatever, even if you're not really into uh, collecting in the sense that somebody who collects baseball cards is into collecting, since that's about all you can do with baseball cards is collect them. Mm -hmm. Um, If you were purely a player, you still needed to collect cards to have cards to play with. So... Yeah, so let me explain something the audience, once again, might, might not be aware of, is... Richard's original vision in the very beginning of the product was Wizards was going to give no information. You, you, you would have no idea what, what the cards were, what rarity they were. Like, you know, um, I know, for example, we didn't print deck lists in the early days. You know, that Richard really had this idea that, like, you learned about magic by going out in the wild. And, and like, kind of the experience you were talking about earlier in, in the playtesting where, you know, you didn't know a card existed until someone played the card against you. And I think Richard really had this idea of this, that there's this mystery of what, what all was in the set. Yes. Yes, that's definitely true. And I, I think that was what kept the product early on. Like, if you number the product, well, then you, like, oh, what, what is number 63? Like, it has to be alphabetically in between this. Like, you start learning about the product if you label it. I, I think that's why early on they didn't label it, because I think it went against Richard's original idea, like, no one knew what it was. Well, that, that was definitely part of it, but, you know, there was also um, these experiences with sports cards, um, you know, they would get bigger and bigger and bigger, at, dollar volume-wise, and then they would mm-hmm. kind of tank, yeah. right? The market would get oversaturated, um, and suddenly sales volumes would go way down and prices would go way down. And so I, there, there definitely was like a business case reason mm-hmm. for apprehension about moving magic in the direction of being collectible, which again, I don't feel like these things moved it in the direction of being collectible. I mm-hmm. feel like these things made it 
made it a better collectible. It's sort of like saying, oh, we're going to improve the quality of the art on the cards, right? Or we're going to improve the quality of the printing process, right? So the fonts are easier to read and it's cards look crisper and better. Well, that's not making it a worse game. Like it's making the overall experience for the user better, but it's not really making like the game itself, the game mechanics any better. Mm -hmm. Right. So I guess that would be sort of my analogy, but people were very, very afraid of what happened um, in, in other industries that were purely collectibles. Yeah. I mean, one thing, I mean, this has been true for my time at wizards is usually when you try something new that you haven't done before, when you're really pushing in brand new space in some way, that there's apprehension because, hey, it's working. Everything's going great. Why, why do we need to make changes? And I think, ironically, one of Magic's strengths has been its willingness to constantly make changes and adapt. And, you know, that I, I, always, I always say that the biggest risk to Magic is not taking risks, is not pushing and trying new things. Which is why you're in the position that you're in. <laughs> that's, that's why I'm here. It's true. Um, so do you have any other, like, sort of, uh, your time as brand manager, any other sort of stories or thoughts of like, wh what do you think of when you think of that, that time? I have a couple years. Yes. Well, I'll, I'll own up to it. The reserve list. <laughs> Excellent decision. I stand behind it. Okay. That's, that's a bold, that's a bold statement. Um, yeah, the, uh, it, it's funny. So like, um, when, when did you leave wizards? What year did you leave wizards? Uh, 2000. 2000. So, um, so for those, for the audience, it's like, uh, 2000, like around Invasion, I think it's when Invasion came out was 2000. Um, so, and one of the things that I, I always enjoyed and as when you were the, the brand manager was you always had a great grasp on sort of like, there's a balance, like magic is a game, but it's a business. And the, the, you know, the, this, how do you make sure it stays an awesome game, but still is a good business and it's, you know, makes sense. And, um, you know, behind the scenes, or, yeah. Good business, yeah. In order to continue to be a good game, right? There's, I mean, the value of having hundreds of people in R and D right now compared to when I worked in R and D, we had, I don't know, I was able to staff up to like six people total. Yeah. Right? Um, I mean, there's just so much more that you can do to create better experiences for more people, and that's purely a result of the business being a good business, enabling that to happen. Yes. Yeah, I, I've made this point many times to people, which is, hey, the healthier Magic is as a business, the better it is for the game, because we just have more resources and we can do more things. And there's there's things we're doing now that we could, right. But, uh, when I started, um, there was four of us at the time that were, that were full-time. You were the head designer, and there were four of us, me and Bill and uh, William Jockish, and Mike Elliott, and like, we were every development team. Every time there was development, we were the development team. And there there were other people around, like Scaff and Jim and stuff, that were like, occasionally do stuff. But um, there were a lot of other products and stuff going on. So like, there were only four of us and you that were like, magic's what we did. You know, we were doing magic most, and even, even us, we were doing other things from time to time, although the majority of our job was magic. Um, okay, so almost, I'm almost at my desk here, so we're not too far from, from, uh, from me being to work. Um, so I know you have a fascination for sort of old cards um, that, you know, one of the, um, I, you shared with me, for example, you have um, some, I know some old chaos orbs in your collection of just things. Um, in fact, it's very impressive. You have, you own the chaos orb that Zach Dolan played in his winning 1994 world championship deck. 
I, and I think like, and it was it was chewed by his dog. What, what was the story? Yes. So years after he played the deck, um, he sold all of his magic cards. But mm-hmm. in the interim, uh, his dog had gotten to the cards and chewed the corner off of the uh, the chaos sword. Yeah. And yeah. so he didn't bother to sell it because nobody can do anything with a chaos orb that's not yeah. structurally, it doesn't <laughs> have structural integrity anymore. Um, so he just kept it. And I guess at some point somebody found out about it and yeah. thought that it would be a cool piece of memorabilia. And so they got it from him and yeah. it's gone through a couple different hands uh, until uh, I just, just got it myself. Yeah. So I know that you, you have a fascination for sort of just old magic cards. I mean, it's, it's, and as someone who obviously has been playing Magic longer than almost anyone on the planet, uh, it is fun looking back. And, you know, I, I have a fondness. You know, I remember, I mean, I started playing Alpha, so not quite as early as you. But, um, you know, I have a fondness for a lot of the early days and the early cards. It's always fun to look back and, and see them. Uh, yeah, absolutely. So um, if most people, they're, they have a very strong nostalgia for the first set of Magic that they played when they came in no matter whether that set was, you know, five years ago or 25 years ago. Uh, so for me, it's gamma play test cards because that's when I came in. <laughs> so, um, you know, I've saved my, my gamma play test cards over the years and traded and, and bought additional ones. So and I have a collection of uh, gamma play test cards as well as a couple subsequent play test card series. And uh, also I started collecting the beta artist proofs Mm-hmm. And sending them to artists to paint uh, versions of of the image on the back. Mm-hmm. Um, so those are those are sort of my current uh, sort of niche collectible. Yeah, that's cool. That's pretty cool. And, so if uh, and I do have a website, yeah, actually, go um, ahead. What is it? Ancestralmtg.com, uh, where you can see some of the cool stuff that I collect. Are there gamma stuff? If people want to go see old playtest cards, can they see old playtest cards on there? Yes, they can see old playtest cards. Yeah, I did. So, by the way, I did a podcast, guys, a little while ago on playtest cards. And the, the original, like, the, you know, pre, pre-game uh, playtest cards are really cute. They're, they're like an inch and a half by two and a half inches, I think. And they, uh, there was Xerox, Richard Xerox stuff. And, like, all the, all the images on them are, like, uh, he cut up pictures from things. And, you know, they're, they're very charming. Yeah, they, they really are. And and they, they kind of prove that at its base, as much as all these other things add to magic, mm-hmm. it's the game design is, you know, really all it needs needs is the game design. So I'm I'm at my desk. So any final thoughts, Joel? Any any last thoughts on your time with magic? Um no, I just I'll say that if um it makes me happy to see uh, you and Bill Rose and Charlie Gatino still there and to see how successful magic has been over the years and to feel like uh, I left it in good hands. I mean, I, I feel like, you know, you talked about a few of the things that I did while I was at Wizards, but really I think the most important thing that I did was uh, finding and promoting people uh, who would be good stewards of magic uh, over the years. And so I'm very happy about that. I, I actually, uh, just found out recently that uh, currently the three longest tenured employees at still at Wizards mm-hmm. are Charlie Catino, Bill Rose, and you. That is true. That is I true. All three. <laughs> so, well, good, good work. Good work, y'all. <laughs> 
So anyway, guys, uh, so Joe, I want to thank you very much for being with us. This was great talking with you. Thank you for, for inviting me. And for everybody else, I'm at my desk. So we know what that means. It means at the end of my drive to work. So instead of talking magic, it's time for me to be making magic. I'll see you all next time. Bye-bye.